Well, I have been uh, greatly blessed by hearing some of the mission outreaches that are taking place here in Great Britain. You know, God's not going to leave his work without witnesses. And you remember that he's going to raise up men from the plough and from the common pursuits of life to do what those who have neglected their duty have not done. I might just give you a little idea of some of the focuses that we have at um, Heartland at the moment. I'm talking about an outreach around the world. Uh, my brother and I had excellent meetings in Honduras and in El Salvador. We were amazed. You know, these self-supporting churches are developing all over. It's a sad indictment upon the fact that many are being disfellowshipped. Latin America is one of the places where uh, there have been more disfellowshippings than I could imagine. You know, I was here in March last year and uh, it was just before my brother and I went down to Bolivia and to Ecuador. And uh, one of the saddest things was to find, and yet it was wonderful in some sense, was the situation in Bolivia. We went to the city of Cochabamba. That's the third largest city in Bolivia. About 400,000 people live there, maybe four and a half, uh, 450,000. And we just happened to be there when the knights of the Virgin Mary brought their little statue of Fatima all the way from Portugal. And I tell you, these knights were impressive-looking young men, all dressed in paper-like garb, marching in step, carrying it. And, of course, we couldn't understand it, but on an in an interview, one of them was being interviewed what their role was, and they said their role was to protect this idol. They didn't call it an idol, of course, even if it meant with their life. I wonder if the young people of today in the Adventist church are willing to protect the message of God and his truth and his righteousness the way they were. The Lord gave us wonderful opportunities to, to witness there. But a group of 90 people had been disfellowshipped from the Cochabamba Church. They included the lay pastor, the senior elder, and eight other elders, and their families, and other people. But I'm thankful to say these people were not separationists. They were not separationists. They had been censured by the conference president six months earlier. After the six months, the church members gladly brought them back into the church because they didn't agree with it. The next week, the president came and disfellowshipped every one of them. Now, he had no right to do that. That's against every principle 
But down there, those principles don't seem to have much sway. <laughs> you know, the church manual is important if it's to um, place in the, uh, at the eyes of faithful people. But these presidents seem to be willing to ignore the manual. As you know, the manual was never meant to be the basis of church discipline. The Bible was to be the basis of church discipline. But we had four television programs, radio programs, a big write-up in the major newspaper of that town. And by the way, the uh, director of that newspaper had been for many years the Minister for Education in Bolivia. But he told me he got out of politics because he couldn't stand all that was taking place in the political sphere there. He thought he might be able to do more good uh, with a, a newspaper to get a better message out than he could get in the government. He had spoken before the US Congress. He was a man of, of great stature. But as we spent an hour and three quarters together in the interview, he was interested in lots of things. He was interested in what I thought about Bolivia taking funds from the International Monetary Commission and taking funds from the World Bank. And I told him that was the most disastrous loans they could make because they become the slaves of the nations. Remember, the International Monetary System is 80% um, of the money in that is US money might be called international, but it's mainly U.S. money. And you know money controls. And I said, governments are very tempted to use it when they're coming up for elections and they want to show they've done something spectacular to help be re-elected. But they or another future government has to face that challenge. And um, by far the... The nation, however, with the most, most self-supporting churches is the Philippines. They've got hundreds and hundreds of self-supporting Adventist self-supporting churches. Now, you might say that's good, but it shows a terrible problem in that nation. By far the largest Adventist population in all of Asia, of any nation in Asia, by far, and um, there's a lot, of, a lot of confusion in the Philippines, terrible confusion in the Philippines because uh, we, we've got people that uh, they've formed into conferences and unions in one case. They have a union, they have a number of conferences. Now... That's going ahead of the Lord because the Lord's going to break down the wrong organization. That's very plain, but it's under the showers of the latter rain. And the problem is we're not ready for the latter rain. As soon as that latter rain comes, this um, perverted structural organization is going to collapse. Second volume of selected messages, 58 and 59, is so plain on that. And of course, you get to get in first selected messages, 205. We don't have to guess. We've got light to tell us all the things that are going to happen. We don't have to go ahead of the Lord, brethren and sisters. Amen. We go with the Lord, but not ahead of him. 
But there is one na nation that we're especially focusing upon this year at Heartland. This year, India will become the second billionaire, if I can use that term, nation of the world. For many years, or quite a few years, China has been the only nation over a billion people, or a thousand million, as would be said here in Great Britain. It's hard to comprehend that number. But India will surpass, they say, that figure this year. Now keep in mind, if you put Pakistan and Bangladesh back together with the old India before the partition of 1947, you remember Pakistan was, and then of course Bangladesh broke away from Pakistan, if you put them together, then India would be greater in population today than it was back in, in uh, rather than, greater than China is today in population. But India is growing much faster than China because China has such very rigorous birth control policies. India does not share those policies. Now, keep in mind, there's only one nation in the world that has as many English-reading people as India, and that's the United States of America. India has three or four times the number of English-reading people as Great Britain has. I want you to keep that in mind. I get varying figures from 190 million to 250 million Indians who read English. That's a challenge. Unlike China, where there are comparatively few people that read English, India, having been part of the British Empire for many years, still has a large number of people that are educated in English. In fact, most of the educated class of India is educated in English. Of course, they have their state language, whether it be Telugu or Hindi or Punjabi, whatever it is, and they usually learn Hindi as a kind of the, the national language. But English is highly valued as a language in India. And so what we're seeking to do is to get as much literature into India. We're trying to build up the funds, the challenge to get it through there. We've had wonderful responses. In fact, it was an interesting thing. Some of you will remember Brother Barbieri. How many remember Brother Barbieri? When he worked at Heartland, he fought tooth and nail against the, youngest, uh, the uh, last generation magazine because at the time it was losing money, you know. And uh, why put money into this magazine? That's not true today. But it was then. But he went with my brother to India a couple of years ago. And whether they're down right at the bottom in Trivandrum or whether they're up there in Bengal or wherever they were, they, he found such a tremendous um, 
response to the Last Generation magazine. And he came and apologized to me. He said, you know, I fought that tooth and nail. But wherever I went in India, that was a magazine doing the work. Pastor J.C. David was visiting us recently. How many of you know Pastor J.C. David? Has he been over here? He lives in Hyderabad, which is the capital of Andhra Pradesh, more or less in the center of India. That's a Telugu-speaking, or the Telugu-speaking state. And uh, he made such a plea to us. He said, of all the materials we get, the one that gives us the best results is the last generation magazine and he said um, you're sending us a few hundred every issue but it just goes nowhere Andhra Pradesh itself has 60 to 70 million people just that one state it's not the largest population but it's a large population because all most of the states of India are large populations and I tell you it was um, thrilling and yet challenging to, to get his plea. He said, surely can't you extend it for three or four times the number? That was a modest plea. But we get the same from Timothy Thara Singh, from the Pedron brothers, Basil and Michael and David, from... Charles Darnasing and from Peter Josephs and Pastor Abraham and Brother Basuma and from, um, oh, numbers of others of the Indians. You know, one thing I will say about India, some of the finest lay workers I've met anywhere in the world are there, but the challenge of a billion people. You know, I remember not long ago receiving a letter from a young Pentecostal pastor in India. He'd been traveling on a train and some faithful witnesses had given him a last generation magazine. It happened to be the Sabbath magazine. And of course, on trains, they're long journeys in India and they don't, trains don't travel that quickly. And he read it from cover to cover. He was so excited about it. He knew his senior pastor would be so thrilled and the membership of the church and so he went then with a new light he had on the Sabbath. He was shocked by the response he got. In no time they dismissed him from the church. And you know what his simple plea was? Are there any other Seventh-day Adventists in India? He knew there had to be in America where the magazine came from. And so I was able to put him in touch with some of our faithful Seventh-day Adventists in India. Oh, I tell you, it is exciting to, to get those letters. Then I had a letter from a nun. She was actually acting as a chaplain in a hospital in India, in the eastern, mid-eastern part of India. And she said, we are gathering all the, um, the nurses and the nuns together here, uh, and we're studying through this material, do you have any more? Well, you can imagine, you can't resist such calls from these people. And of course, it's not only going to Seventh-day Adventists, I mean to Christians, it's going to non-Christians as well. 
So that's our, our great uh, burden this year to see if we cannot greatly enhance the amount of material we get into that. Now, if even if there was, say, um, 200 million homes in India, let's say, I don't know, the families are often big in India, that's why it's growing so rapidly. But also there's some tragic, a uh, lot of infant mortality. They, in certain parts they don't have the same facilities that we have here. In some parts they do. In the best facilities of India are very good. But not everyone lives or has even the finance to get that kind of care. Another thing, if you, if you get the um, Remnant Herald, you'll see that at last there is a wake-up in South Africa amongst our people. For years, they seem to be kind of isolated in their understanding of the, what was taking place in our church, but now it is affecting them so greatly. And um, in fact, uh, um, we're trying to arrange to go over there, perhaps March of next year, and really solidify the faithful people there in the Republic of South Africa. But just before I conclude, let me just explain what the population of India means in the world. It's very much greater than the population of Europe. Put all the nations of Europe together and they could fit in one part of India. Not the size, the India is not that huge but the population is. Take all of Africa, all the nations of Africa, and they don't come up to 800 million. Put North and South America together and the Caribbean, and there's more people in India. When you, only the continent of Asia, and of course it's part of the continent of Asia, is greater than the population of India. And every one of those Indians has got to hear this gospel. Even if you had a 10 cent piece of literature, or 10 pence should we say in England, <laughs> you think how many pounds would be needed just to get one in the hands of each person. It's just dramatic, the work that is to be done. To get one in every hand, you'd have to have a hundred million dollars or a hundred million pounds if it was ten pence. But God's going to see everyone there is going to hear this gospel. Every Hindu, every Muslim, every Sikh, every Parsi, Every religion, and there are many of them in India, they're all going to hear the gospel. But we're going to do all that we can to get it in there. Well, let's open our Bibles to First Peter. I wish all the young people were inside because that's who I'm talking to especially here this afternoon. I like to see the whites of the eye. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Paul is giving counsel. He's giving them first. That counsel is first given 
to the elders of the church. But in verse 5, Paul addresses the young members of the church. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. You know, young people, please don't think that you can get all the wisdom from fellow youth. There was a time in the 70s especially where there was all the effort, and it hasn't been lost even now, to, to get the young people to think that the older people were too out of touch with the rapidly changing technological and computer society that we were coming into. And therefore, you couldn't take much notice of the older people. And a rebellion took place. No question about that. But there's one thing. There are not many advantages as being old. Anyone that's old understands that. There are not a lot of advantages, but there is one advantage, and that is experience. Right. You know, I thank the Lord. I learned when I was young, if I wanted to know things on spiritual natures, I didn't go to a young pastor. I didn't go to someone that was a little green be behind the ears. I went to older men. And that has always been a philosophy, but I'm running out of older men now, as you can imagine. <laughs> I'll never forget when Russell and myself were in our early mid-40s and there was a meeting together with these old retired pastors and presidents and so on. And uh, the earnestness, they could see what was happening in the South Pacific Division and how the younger, the newer breed of leaders was taking the church away from the precious truths of the gospel. And that was almost more than they could, they could handle. And they turned to Russell and myself and they said, you young men. You know, usually when you're in your 40s, you don't consider yourself young. You mightn't consider yourself old. But to those men in their late 60s, 70s and 80s, as those men that were there, all retired men, there must have been in that little group about a dozen of them on that particular occasion. Of course, there were more. And they said to us, promise us, that when we're gone, you young men will carry this message forward. I'll never forget the last conversation of any consequence I had with my dad before he died. It was, I believe, the end of August, 1997. My brother and I were on the phone to our dad because my brother was still in the United States and we were at his son's place. We called up our dad and uh, he was to die in October. I did have one or two efforts to talk to him after that, but he was just fading away. This was the last significant conversation. And during the course of that conversation, he said, boys, now you young people mightn't think that there'd be anyone that would call us boys, but our dad had the right to call us boys. I want you to know that. 
We were then 63 years of age. <laughs> but he said, boys, promise me that you will not stop preaching what you've been preaching. You know, that meant a lot to us. We were so grateful that our dad was riveted upon the same message that God had placed in our heart. But we should not have been surprised because he was the one with our mother that taught us that message. And my dad in many ways died a sad man. I mean, from the age of 27 to the last couple of years of his life, there was hardly a year. He wasn't an elder, and mainly a head elder of churches. But he had seen the dramatic change in the church in Australia. And on one occasion he said, I never dreamt the day would come when a whole conference would be in apostasy. A serious situation. But we have, of course, the hope of the return of Jesus Christ. Now, young men and women here at Gaisley. Thank you. Young men and women the mantle is falling upon you. And seek out the older men. I had the privilege as a child and youth of meeting some of the first ministers ever in Australia. That was a high privilege. Pastor Robert Hare, Pastor A.W. Anderson, that's the father of Pastor O.K. Anderson and some of the other Anderson men. Pastor A.G. Stewart. Pastor A.H. Piper. Pastor A.A. Stewart, a brother of A.G. Stewart. All these men were men who had become pastors in the early years of the work in Australia. Of course, they were all men when I knew them. We had the privilege, when I was a student at Avondale, the years were 1950 and 51. In those years, the teacher training course was a two-year course. And, of course, keep in mind, we're in the Southern Hemisphere, so the academic year corresponded with the calendar year. And every so often, Pastor A.H. Piper would come to the young men's worship Oh, we love that. He was then a man in his middle 70s. But for 18 months, he'd lived in the home of Sister White with Sister White as a young student at Avondale. You imagine the privilege of a young man living in the home of Sister White for 18 months. It's the same period of time that Paul stayed with the Corinthian believers. 18 months. And he would tell us stories about Sister White. Now, we're in a time, young people, where many are denying the spirit of prophecy or they're deteriorating their thoughts on the spirit of prophecy by faint praise. But they don't really believe in the power and the inspiration of the spirit of prophecy. And he said, young people, and this is going back to 1950, I hear people saying that other people wrote 
Sister White's books. He said, well, young men, I want to tell you something. They didn't hear her preach. No one preached her sermons. She had to preach her own sermons. There was no one that could preach them for her. And he said, if you'd have heard her preach, you'd know that they are her writings. Now, we have written a book called Winds of Doctrine. And in that book, we challenged those who were saying you can't accept the writings of Sister White after 1884. There's a whole chapter on that. And we look at the accusations that were made in the past and are being made again. And we look at Sister White's countering of those accusations about her writings. She knew that there were those kind of efforts to try and discredit the writings that she had made. I wonder if people give due consideration to what she said. What she said about the 1888 edition of Great Controversy. By the way, tomorrow I'm going to be taking this up. Some of these winds of doctrine as well as some further events that are happening in the world. Please do everything to be back here tomorrow. I know that people tend to dwindle away on Sunday. I can understand it. But you know, a preacher usually is building up in a series. It's not coming to a little pinnacle at 11 o'clock and then fading into nothing. And what she wrote about the 1911 edition of Great Controversy, I always ask people, if you don't believe that that is her writing, then I want you to tell me who the prophet was that wrote that. Because everything there is coming to pass with pinpoint accuracy today. You look at 571 in Great Controversy. It tells us there that... Um, the papacy would bring apologies. Does that ring a bell? Yes. And then she tells us the reality behind those apologies. You go back and read 571. Many of you might know the passage very well. 571, a great controversy. Are those apologies sincere? Does it mean that there'll never be papal a, a persecution again? Oh, listen. Don't be deceived, but there are many Adventists are being deceived. I couldn't believe what was written by the secretary of the Trans-European Division. If a man had written what he wrote in the Spectrum magazine last year, he would have been out of the ministry very quickly 30 or 40 years ago. He has bought hook, line, and sinker the claims of the papacy. Young people, the papacy never changes. Oh, it will twist and turn to appear to accommodate all sorts of things. I want to read you tomorrow some of the latest things said by Seventh-day Adventists about the papacy. 
what the Congress of the United States has said about the Pope. Those seven unbelievable statements justifying giving him this gold medal. And they put aside $30,000 to strike this gold medal for the Pope. That's, that takes a bit of gold, doesn't it? Of course, there's more to it than just the gold encased in, in it. $30,000 as an honor, a congressional medal for the Pope. We'll be looking at that tomorrow. I tell you, if you think we're a long way away from the joining of the United States and the papacy into the greatest politico-religious power this world has ever known, if you think the Middle Ages was bad, what's it going to be like at the end of time? And young people, you've got to face those things. You've got to challenge them. You've got to bring to the people in these times, when there's talk about hate crime, when people that preach come out of her, my people are called people of hate. I tell you there's enough in my mind to sue the Associated Press for their false statements that went on the wire or whatever they use today, certainly on their net website, went into many newspapers claiming that Rafael Perez and his church not only are a hate group, but they're calling Roman Catholics and Protestants that keep Sunday as their Sabbath as Satanists and Paganists. Do we call them Satanists and Pagans? What does God call faithful people in Babylon? What does he call them, brethren and sisters? Other sheep? My people. Come out of her. Would you kill someone that was God's part of God's people? A Satanist? Or a pagan? They don't know what you know. They don't know what I know. But God has asked us to tell them what his message is. And young men and young women, you've got to call people out of Babylon. Now to call them out of Babylon, you've got to identify it. I don't know how many have read the book that we wrote last year called um, Papal Letters and Sunday Laws. In that book we give 81 biblical identifications of the Antichrist. Now I want you to find anyone that can give you any organization, any individual, Anybody of a religious group, anyone I want you to find that could fit in. You know, you heard of Antiochus Epiphanes. Could he fit those 81 characteristics? You try and test it out. Could Nero, he was a wicked man all right. And in more modern times, people like Hitler... And Saddam Hussein, you try to put the test, put the biblical test. You've got to have to identify it or people won't know who they're to come out of. Now we've got to do it in love. We really have got to plead with the people in love. I know when we're evangelizing in Latin America, you don't have to 
guess that the vast majority of those who are not Adventists there, and it's many more non-Adventists than Adventists, you know they're Catholics. You don't have to guess. Now, they may be fairly passive Catholics. Some may be very earnest Catholics. But you're going to have a huge number of Catholics there. Do we say, well, we don't identify? We, we have found a very successful approach to it. Of course, we lead up to that identification. But eventually it comes plain who it is. I remember when Ray DiCarlo, just uh, in March, was holding a crusade in Culpeper, and he had two meetings on the identification of the Antichrist. I knew he wasn't going to identify it the first night. <laughs> and eventually partway through the second presentation. And as soon as he said it, a woman sitting in the front row said, I knew it! I knew it! <laughs> Just as he said it. Another woman said to one of our young ladies who had bought her there, one, one of our recent graduates, but who was back doing a little work at Heartland, before he said it, she said, she was a woman from Chile. She said, he's talking about my papa. She could, that's before he, you know, when you start looking at the identifications, one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other, and you add one to another, there is only one conclusion you can draw. You really don't need 81 identification, but that's how strong the Bible has been. And we might have missed one or two. don't think too many, but it's very serious. But brethren, we're not going to be able to avoid identification, identifying the Antichrist. But in love, and so... We have a habit when we get to that, and we'd say, how many here are now uh, Seventh-day Adventists? And the hands go up. It's usually maybe a third or sometimes a quarter of those that are there. So you've got a good idea, because we don't know all the, the Adventists yet. So we, and you've got that happening. And then I said, how many of you were once Roman Catholics and are now Seventh-day Adventists? And you know a good percentage of those will put their hands up again. And then we ask them, aren't you thankful to the Lord that he called you into the wonderful light of the three angels' messages? Of course, by this time we've identified the three angels' messages as the last message to the world, the everlasting gospel that will go to every nation, kindred, tongue and people. And so we are here to bring to you the only gospel that Jesus will give to this world before his return. And then I say, how many w would you welcome those who are now Roman Catholics, but now have learned that Jesus is calling them 
out to come and join with the Seventh-day Adventist people. Of course, those Latin Americans are enthusiastic and their hands and their enthusiasm comes through. And we explain to them then that God loves them. It's because he loves them that he's calling them out of Babylon because he wants them not to be partakers of their sins or of her sins or nor to receive of her plagues. Is that a message of hate? Brethren and sisters, is that a hate message? No. What a loving God. You know what would be hateful? To leave them in Babylon without any invitation, without the identification. Oh, yes, we know the system is an admixture of Christianity and paganism. We know that. We understand it. I mean, where else do you get Sunday sacredness? Do you get it from Christianity? No, you get it from paganism. Where do you get immediate life after death? Where do you get it from? From paganism. You've gone through all these aberrations. Where do you get penance from? Paganism. Where do you get confession to human priests? Paganism. Where do you get the rose? Oh, well, it's no, you know, if any of you have read Hislop's book, the only thing that I can't understand about Hislop was that he couldn't see the Sabbath was part of the paganism or the Sunday was part of the paganism of Catholicism. He seemed to pick up every other aberration, didn't he? Or almost every other. Young people, that's the call that is placed upon you. The challenge, you can't avoid it. But keep in mind that God has placed upon you a divine calling. Let me just finish this passage here in Peter and then I want to look at the divine calling that God has placed upon the lives of every young man and woman, every boy and girl, these young people here, this boy over here. God has placed a divine calling. Parents, do you realize that God has a divine calling for each of the boys and girls and the children and the youth? By the way, he has it on you. You may have gone through life and forgotten about it or never realized it. Some of you haven't. But you, every human being has a divine calling. Even the worst criminal that ever came upon this earth had a divine calling. Doesn't mean they fulfilled it, of course. You notice what else it says to the young people in verse 5. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with what? You know, it's easy to be caught up in pride. Very easy. And young people in normal society, they're forced or pushed into this prideful thing. They want to be on the winning football team or whatever it is. They want to be first in their class. Things that we can be proud of. Not realizing that we may be perverting the talents that God has given to us or rejecting the call that he has on our life and service. And then it says, God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. So young people, without humility, you won't receive the grace of God. Verse 6, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. He that will humble himself one day will be exalted. But you won't exalt yourself. 
Jesus will exalt you. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. I believe especially that's pertinent today. God really cares for the boys and girls. God really cares for the young people because he knows what assault they are under from Satan. It was hard enough to be a youth when I was young. I didn't find it easy going through my teen years. Satan assaulted me on every side. But today there's such a myriad of additional temptations and tests and trials, dear brethren and sisters. Satan has worked out everything from de deranging the mind through drugs, through music, through all sorts of sensualities. We have the web and you can get any shocking things off the web. Casting all your care upon him for he careth for you. I believe especially that's pertinent today. God really cares for the boys and girls. God really cares for the young people because he knows what assault they are under from Satan. It was hard enough to be a youth when I was young. I didn't find it easy going through my teen years. Satan assaulted me on every side. But today there's such a myriad of additional temptations and tests and trials, dear brethren and sisters. Satan has worked out everything from de deranging the mind through drugs, through music, through all sorts of sensualities. We have the web and you can get any shocking things off the web. Now, I haven't seen them. I want to be very quick to tell you that. <laughs> but you don't have to be to have seen them to know what goes on. And young people, you don't need to test it out just for curiosity. Don't fall to curiosity. You don't have to go to a seance to know that Satan's there. When um, I was president of West Indies College back in the early 70s, I went to Haiti. My wife and I went to Haiti. And would you believe it, the leaders of the church in Haiti had arranged for us to go to see a voodoo demonstration. I, as respectfully as I could, declined. They were shocked. They thought we'd love to go and see a voodoo demonstration. <laughs> Brethren, I know Satan's there. Why would I deliberately walk into that? And they said, well, we've had general conference people down here and they were interested to go. Well, I said, every man and woman has to make his or her decision. You don't go there. You don't go to a seance just to see what it's like. You don't play with a widgie board just to see what will happen. No. And young people, especially young men, you don't look at pornography just to see what it's like. God... Jealously. The avenues of the soul. Curiosity is used by Satan, young people. Remember that God cares for you. Casting all your cares upon him. For he careth for you. 
And then, of course, be sober, be vigilant for your adversary. The devil is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking him he may devour. There's no question that Satan is attacking the youth, focusing on the youth. If he can destroy this generation of young men and young women, that's the end of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Who then can God raise up? The rocks will cry out. But young people, remember what Mordecai said that we read last night? That deliverance and enlargement will come from another. God's going to deliver his people. But if you don't, if you hold your peace, you're not going to be part of being used by God in that deliverance. Oh, this is an important time to realize that the only hope we have is total, absolute, unwavering dependence upon Jesus Christ. Amen. By the way, this is not only a message for young people because that's the same for those of us that are 50, 60, 70, 80 years of age. All of us need that total dependence. It's the only dependence that there is. You know... When I think about the fact that God has a calling, I think of what David wrote in the Psalms. You know, the 139th Psalm, <clears throat> it tells us just how God relates to his people. We know the, the statements well, but let's look at it in the light of the calling that God has placed upon each one of us. Verse 13, For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. Now all of us here were once in our mother's womb. All of us. There was a time where every person here was in his or her mother's womb. It's the only way we come into an existence. But, you know, he's talking about God. For thou hast possessed, God has possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. Verse 14. I will praise thee for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works and that my soul knoweth right well. Now, do you think that David understood all the wonder of DNA, of genes and chromosomes, the miracles of the trillions of cells? He didn't understand that, but he still knew that we were fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, every one of us is a miracle. By the way, every blade of grass is a miracle. You don't have to be a human being to be a miracle. Every blade of grass is a miracle. God has worked the miracle of creation, and we're the result of his creation. Verse 15, My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret, and curiously roared in the lowest parts of the earth. God knew when we were conceived. 
Now here, one cell or one fertilized cell, all of us started as one fertilized ovum. All of us. Microscopically. It's hard to think that we all started microscopically, but we did. And it says in verse 16, Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance was fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. Before we were even conceived, God put the blueprint, if you like, of each one of us in his book. Perfect blueprint. God's not going to make any mistake in the resurrection, by the way. Because he has a perfect blueprint of every human being that has ever lived on the face of this planet. He's not going to raise the wrong one or leave in the grave the wrong one. No. Perfectly. You know, all the arguments there were in the early Adventist church on whether all the cells that ever belonged to a human being will be resurrected. You imagine how long our fingernails would be and and our toenails and all the cells that, that uh, be replenished and so on. God doesn't need that. He's got a perfect blueprint of each one of us. And you know, you might say, well, what about identical twins? Well, he can easily, you know, sometimes people have problems, especially when they're young, of um, identifying one or the other. I mean... I've had twins in my class that I never did identify. And I should be more perceptive being a twin myself. Um, but uh, I could never be sure which one of the twins it was. But do you think that's hard to Jesus? No. no. If one of those twins gave his heart to the Lord and the other one gave his heart to Satan, would, would the wrong twin be resurrected? No. No. God has everything perfectly. Of course, it's a little easier for Russell and myself because we're mirror image twins. And so I'm written down as the left-handed one. He's written down as the right-handed one. But God doesn't even need that. Every human being is perfectly identified in the records of heaven. But that means God has claims upon everyone. Let's come over to the experience of John the Baptist. Let's look at that to get us clearly in mind. John the Baptist in John chapter 1. I'm sorry, not John, Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And verse 15. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink and he shall be what? Filled, Filled with the Holy Ghost from where? Even from, his mother's womb. from his mother's womb. Do you think John the Baptist is the only person that's been filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb? No. We know how that happened, parents, because in verse 41, and it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, that the babe leaped where? In her womb. In her womb. And Elizabeth was? 
filled with the Holy Ghost. You know, mothers, how important it is not to initiate a life into the world until you are filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean not to even initiate, let alone carry a prenate. And if you come over to chapter 1 and the, verse 67, And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Would it be going too far? Would it be fanatical to say that no child should be initiated into the world unless both father and mother have so surrendered their life to the Lord, they're under the influence of the Holy Spirit every moment of every day. What a privilege it is for a child to have a father and mother that are wholly surrendered to the power of the Holy Spirit. Because that little babe in the womb is overshadowed. You know, sometimes... It's difficult. I've often thought of the disadvantages we had have to counter because both our children were adopted. Those nine months are so critical. You imagine being born when your mother has always had the calmness and the serenity and the love. You know, that comes through into the prenate. The blood that the mother generates, she's going to eat a very simple and healthy diet. Do you think that's going to make a difference to the prenate? Her emotions are not going to be up and down. There's not a crush of adrenaline this time and another flush of adrenaline. And that goes through the placenta filter. And what does a little prenate do? You know what adrenaline does. And a little prenate, you imagine, a flush of adrenaline of the mother's uh, adult um, adrenaline gland into a little prenate, maybe this big or this big or whatever size it is at the time. Oh, I tell you, every emotional outburst of the mother influences the babe, the prenate. At every level, whether it's the zygote for the first couple of weeks or the embryo up to three months or whatever approximately or the fetus. It all has an influence on the child. But if the mother is rich in faith and trust and love and is singing those beautiful hymns, you know, it's been shown that before they're born, well before they're born, prenates can hear. They can respond to music. They respond to a certain rhythm of their mother and so on. I've always said that we've got about 18 months to develop the, the temperament of a child and nine, the most important nine months are before birth. Often a babe is born temporally, temp with a temperament rather, that is very very difficult for that child to be calm and and uh, reasoned in later life. Because God can still work miracles. I think of the experience of Isaiah. Let's look at it, young people. Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 1. Here the prophet tells of his experience. Listen, O isles, unto me. 
And hearken ye people from far, the Lord hath called me when? From the womb. Do you think in these latter times God wouldn't call us from the womb? Do you think he understood as a prenate that he was called of God? No, but he was called of God. From the womb, from the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. Isn't that a wonderful situation? Come over to Jeremiah chapter 1. Here God is talking and Jeremiah is the scribe, if you like. And he's telling Jeremiah something in his calling. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. In other words, before he was even conceived, God knew him. What foreknowledge God has. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. Surely you've got to be filled with the Holy Spirit if you're sanctified. I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Listen, God has ordained every one of the young men and women here. It may be as a prophet, a teacher, an evangelist. It might be ordained to the corporate ministry. It might be ordained to the publishing ministry. It might be ordained to the medical ministry or any other of the features of God's work. But God has ordained each one to a ministry. He's called you from the womb. He's known you before you were conceived. Now I, I tell you, you can run away from that calling. You can be just satisfied with a job or occupation or career or something like that. Or you're going to give everything that God has given to you to the kingdom of his righteousness. You're all. Now there are many other ways you can serve the Lord. I'm not just saying in those ways. But whatever God has called you to do, remember, it's for the Lord's glory, for his kingdom. You can't be satisfied, young people, with just a job. Well, I'm getting enough to keep body and soul together. You know, you hear, or I'm earning a good salary. No. Or I'm able to provide well for my family. Listen, God won't let you down. I can attest that. I've now been 22 years in self-supporting work. By the way, Melvin, I never call it independent. Never use that term. I tell you why. A self-supporting person is wholly dependent upon God. Amen. And by the way, as has been pointed out here, people work together. And you referred to the fact that they don't always work together. But true self-supporting ministries work together. They... Um, supplement and complement each other. See, this is the, the issue. God has got a calling upon you. You can run away from it. Jonah did that, didn't he? Did God say, all right, bye-bye, Jonah, that's the end of you? God's so good to us. 
Some of you might have been running away from the calling that God has for you. You might have been. Don't run away. I say that in all earnestness because I know how long my brother and I ran away. Almost as young as I can remember, my brother and I, our mother would say, boys, wouldn't it be wonderful if you became ministers? Wouldn't it be wonderful if you became pastors? I can remember her saying that when we were at the Bullaroo Church and we left the Bullaroo Church just as we turned nine. So how much earlier than that, I can't remember. But I believe the Holy Spirit had greatly convicted my mother that her two sons should be ministers. But we wanted nothing of it. We wanted nothing of it. We compromised and we said, well, we become teachers. We knew we weren't good enough to be ministers, as if you've got a lower calling to be a teacher. When you think about it, if there's any region where you have to be closer to the Lord than a minister, surely it's a teacher because you've got those children six hours or more, whatever it is, a day, five days a week. The pastor doesn't have that close contact and contact with these individuals. It's very easy for a teacher to be a poor example, lose his temper, become irritated, and not show the patience for the children that are struggling. But you know, there's only so long that you can run. I, I've thought of that, and in my letter to the General Conference Brethren, I pointed out that both our mother and Elder Spears' mother had dedicated us to the ministry. And all three of us tried to run away. But by God's grace, he didn't stop. And um, I was 37 years old when eventually I was willing to accept that calling. My brother, you know, going into education wasn't the normal route of becoming a minister. And certainly my brother going into the role of a physician. But God didn't leave him alone either. The only sadness I have is that my mother was dead when Russell became a minister at 46 years of age. She did have the privilege of knowing that I had been ordained a minister. God will seek, but why lose all those years, young people? And at this time, how many years do we have? How many more years? If God is calling you to put all your life into the work of the gospel, you know, if God has called you to some area, he might call you to be a physician. But let us be a medical missionary physician, not just a money-making physician. <coughs> there are mission fields, and we've got to get into the health message, no matter what we're trained in. 
because that's the true medical missionary work. He might call us to be a nurse, but I tell you most of the nursing training is just in that allopathic kind of medicine. Is that what God's going to use for medical missionaries at the end of time? No. He's not. We know what God, we don't have to guess on it. He might call us into some other area, business. Are you going to be a business person just to make money for yourself or to be an accountant or a business manager of some great corporation or something? Or a treasurer? Or are you going to give those talents to the Lord? What are you going to do, young people? We do need wonderful business people, but they've got to be able to sacrifice for the Lord. Don't say, well, I've had all this training. Look at all I paid for it. Listen, whatever you've paid for your training is minimal compared with what Jesus paid for your salvation. Amen. Don't talk to me about how much money you've put into it or how many years you've studied. That's not the issue. That's nothing compared with what Jesus did to leave the courts of, he, of heaven. And little enough to give back to him our service. God wants each of the young men and women here to surrender their whole to him. You might be able to make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year some people in business may be millions a year. But God is calling you to sacrifice. Put all your talents into his work. You may have to rely upon him for your bread and water. But sacrifice is the only thing that will make you a worthy servant of Jesus Christ. The only way you'll ever help finish the work of God in any significant way because the work that began in sacrifice will end in what? Even greater sacrifice. One word to the parents before we have prayer. The children that God has entrusted to you. Under no circumstances inspire them with egocentric goals. Of course they'll have to make their decision but just hope Hold up for them the matchless claims of Jesus. I can honestly say the only burden I have for my two children, and they're at very decision-making ages now at 14 and 17, is that they will surrender their life and give their life in service for God and man. I've got no interest in them earning a lot of money. I've got no interest in them becoming powerful or popular or any other of those worldly goals. Each one of us has to give our all, for Jesus gave his all. And parents, bring them up, knowing that your only hope is that they'll be in the kingdom of heaven. On these issues, we wrote... This book here, Adventism in Peril, it's a book that is full of those principles 
And I'm afraid that many of us haven't read many of those principles. But really, every parent should have read it, and every young person should read it. Reading it for the kingdom of eternity. Well, God bless you. And I pray that we'll see mighty, much mightier works done here in Great Britain by the young men and women who have surrendered their lives to the Lord. Let's kneel together. How we thank thee, our Father in heaven, that we have here young men and women who have a growing commitment with the Lord. We know that it's not simply a relationship that we need, but it's to be a living connection. It's to be an abiding in Jesus. Lord, whatever our background may have been, whatever our start in life may have been, we know that Christ has claims upon our service which are matchless at this time in earth's history. We cannot turn away from the calling of God without endangering our own salvation and the souls of those who we, whom we would have witnessed to had we surrendered all to thee. Oh Lord, I pray that every young man and woman here and those of us who are older will have many sheaves to present before the Lord as we come to the end of this earth's history. And may the Holy Spirit find ready access in every heart and life. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.